Shalom and welcome to the Gospel According to Moses, Exodus, and we're in a lesson 11. And this is Reverend John Ferret again. And in this lesson, we're going to be focusing in finally on Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So reading those verses in the New American Standard, we read, Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Now, when you actually put this in context, in textual context, Moses is referring to the elders and the people of Israel. What if they won't believe me? It's not Pharaoh he's worried about. But he's worried about coming to the elders of Israel and Israel to say, hey, the Lord appeared to me, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And indeed... He's basically saying, what if they don't believe me? The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, then it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out again, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent neither recently nor in time past nor since you have spoken to your servant for i am slow of speech and slow of tongue the lord said to him who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind is it not i the lord now then go and i even i will be your mouth and teach you what you are to say So again, Moses is saying, this is his third objection, third objection. What if they won't believe me? So perhaps Moses is thinking that the response from this God would be insufficient. And he could then walk away and get out of it. Remember, up until this point, the Bible is clear. Moses had never encountered the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob before. The other thing is, is that he's still before Yahweh at the burning bush. And we're going to see that indeed Moses does not want to do this. He wants out of here. So far he's bringing up objections, but he's really not specifying what's really in his heart. No way does he want to face Pharaoh. Would you? the most powerful and fearsome king on the face of the earth. Besides that, Moses was wanted for murdered, murder in Egypt. A non-Egyptian killing an Egyptian 
is a capital offense and that requires capital punishment, execution. Now, God responds to Moses' objections and we see three signs. Number one, Moses' staff turns into a snake. Moses' hand becomes afflicted with a skin disease. It's not leprosy. And the final one is turning the waters of the Nile into blood. Now the key is specifically the Torah saying that these signs were to convince the elders and the people of Israel. This is not the signs of the plagues. You can read this in Exodus chapter 4 verse 30. We'll be there in another lesson. Now let's take a look at these signs. The first sign again to the elders and the people of Israel is Moses' staff is changed into a serpent. Later on, Moses would call this staff the staff of God. He'll say this in Exodus 4, right in this chapter, verse 20, and then later on in Exodus 17, verse, verse 9. Moses know, knows it's not him. It's got nothing to do with him, but it's the power of God that he is serving and obeying. So Moses throws down the staff, it becomes a snake, and Moses gets away fast. Now that's pretty clear. He's a shepherd. He experiences life in these areas. He knows the snakes. And more than likely, it's probably a very poisonous snake. So of course he jumps. I would jump too when all of a sudden this piece of wood turns into a snake. And on top of that, it's probably poisonous. But what's interesting is God tells Moses to pick it up. He tells Moses to pick it up by the tail. You don't do that with a poisonous snake. This is absolutely dangerous. I can just hear Moses, the experienced shepherd of Midian, saying, uh, God, um, this is not how you pick up a snake. As a shepherd, again, in the Sinai, he would know you pick up snakes behind the head. And so in this way, you control the movement of the snake that may turn and try to bite the person that's picking them up. But if you pick them up in the head, they can't do it. But Moses obeys. He picks up the snake by the tail as God instructed. And Moses is not bitten. And the snake turns back into a staff. Moses has got to be thinking, whoa, is this amazing or what? Not only did the staff turn into a snake, but I picked it up by the tail and it turned back again and I was not bitten. Now another thing about this staff turning into a snake, Moses will do this for the Hebrews. Now remember, earlier in earlier sessions, we talked about the Bible seems to be fairly clear that the Hebrews, for the most part, had assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And Pharaoh is always seen with his arms crossed because he's holding a shepherd's staff and a flail, which is a kind of a 
chain hanging from a stick that is used for punishment. So Pharaoh carried both of these, and it, th these are signs of his authority over Egypt. And second of all, you have to obey me as your shepherd or else, the phileo, okay, and that's where the punishment comes in. Basically, the picture of Pharaoh is that I am your shepherd, but don't cross me. And on top of that, that Pharaoh is God. This miracle, this sign again is to the Hebrews because they are so used to this picture of Pharaoh with the shepherd's crook and the phileo that what God is saying, Pharaoh is not a God. He has no authority. More than that, it's going to be a sign to show the Hebrews in all Egypt that the power of the magicians was false. I'm going into Dr. John Kareed's study commentary on the Torah entitled Exodus. And he has comments because he is an archaeologist and a well-known Egyptologist. And so again, he knows the Egyptian culture, especially the Egyptian culture in Moses' day. So reading about this, reading about the staff that turned into a snake, Dr. Kareed says, the turning of Moses' staff into a serpent is the first physical sign that God gives to the prophet as evidence of his calling and task. It's a precursor of the serpent confrontation in Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, in which the Egyptian magicians appear to perform the same feat. Moses' rod, of course, swallows their staffs, thereby demonstrating God's uh, sovereignty over Egypt. So this sign, and so for the Hebrews, seeing this sign, it's going to be a polemic against Egypt. In other words, this sign, this staff of Moses turning into a snake, means that it's a picture coming against Egypt, coming against its gods, coming against uh, its magicians, coming against even Pharaoh, a polemic. Because its magicians, the Egyptians of Egypt, prided themselves on being able to change inanimate objects into animate objects by means of a magical rod. For example, when attacked by enemies, the magician king Nechtanibo II, this was 360 to 343 BC, uses his rod of enchantment to turn wax figures of soldiers and ships into a live fighting force. Numerous Egyptian scarabs attest to that practice by depicting scenes of magicians holding rods in their hands that could instantly be turned into snakes. So indeed, what we have, this miracle, sign to the Hebrews that Pharaoh's not God, he has no authority, that the, the, the magic of the Egyptian magicians is false. This is huge. It's going to be an amazing, an amazing sign, not only to the Hebrews when Moses returns, but also later to the Egyptians. Now, the second sign is Moses' hand attains a dreadful skin disease. It is not leprosy. The Hebrew word there is metzerat, and the Strong's number is H6879. And medical 
Jewish medical specialists, Christian medical specialists, look at all of the places where Metzerat is mentioned. And it's been falsely translated as leprosy when it can't be. So in John Karit's commentary that I just read, he goes into it in depth. Uh, Dennis Prager, in his um, Rational Bible series, the Exodus, and also coming in Leviticus, also stated there. In the JPS, Jerusalem Publication Society commentary, the same thing. For one simple reason, leprosy cannot affect clothes. Leprosy cannot affect cloth. Leprosy cannot be cannot affect uh, um, bricks in a home or stone. So, but the cloth and the houses would get mitzrat. So it's not leprosy. It's a serious malady of some kind that really affects the skin. Now this is assigned to the Hebrews. Now later on, in Deuteronomy thirty-two verse thirty-nine, you can look this up. God says, I am the only one who takes life and gives life. He's the one that controls life and controls death. Now from Genesis to Revelation, God says he is the same yesterday, today, and to, and, and forever. Malachi 3.6, God says to Jacob, listen, O Jacob, I am God and I do not change. Hebrews 13.8, the same thing. Our God's power over disease and death. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But we also talk about remembering the events in Jesus' day. The woman with the bleeding disease. For 12 years and she was cured. Yarius' daughter, who was the prince of the synagogue in Capernaum. And his daughter is raised from the dead. So for the Hebrews, this second sign... It's a way for God, again, to teach them about himself. To convince, again, the Hebrews that Moses met with the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. It's not used to convince Pharaoh. So, it is the second amazing sign of God's power. It seems directly related to the plague of the boils. We're going to be coming to that when we finally get into the plagues. When we get into the plague of the boils, it's the plagues of the Shekin. And it's a skin malady, skin ulcer, boils, an inflammation. And so indeed, we see that God is controlling disease both giving it and healing it. So it's the awesome power of the one and only true God. Now the third sign, the Hebrews are to see that Moses is going to get water from the Nile, which means he's going to probably have it in some sort of a jar, and he's going to spill it on the ground and when it hits the ground, it will turn to blood. Now, this is not what happened when Pharaoh did this, in, uh, when Moses did this in front of Pharaoh. Now, the Hebrews, like I said, were, an intimately, were intimately a part of the Egyptian culture. The Nile was life. 
The Nile was worshipped as a god, and so many of the gods of the Egyptian pantheon were related to the Nile. Without the Nile, Egypt dies. And here, Moses is going to perform a sign for all Israel. And Moses has got to trust this one. Um, one of the things, he's still in front of the burning bush. He's a long way from the Nile. So, God has got to say, you got to trust me on this one, Moses. Moses will leave the burning bush and will remember that, and he will actually see the miracle happen. So it's going to be kind of a unique thing for him as well. But here's the key. Once Moses does this, remember the water will turn into blood once it hits the ground. This is specifically what the Torah says. This shows that the water is not in the jar. This shows that the, there's no trick going on by somehow the water being manipulated in the jar in a special way. They're going to see it with their own eyes and so is Moses. Well, we now come to Moses' fourth objection in verse 10. In verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. With regards to this, uh, there are some who speculate that... Uh, Moses had a problem with speech and it was probably stuttering. Uh, that's only an opinion. You can't prove it. Some say Moses lost his ability to speak Egyptian because it's been 40 years. Well, maybe not losing his ability to speak Egyptian totally, but maybe easily and smoothly. Again, speculation. Something's going on. Moses admits that he has a speech impediment. We don't know what it is. Regardless, Moses answers, or God answers Moses, more than adequately. Moses is not going to get out of this. God says, I will be your mouth. And Moses, I will give you what to say. Now, it's not surprising When David wrote Psalm 23, verse 1, Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. The Hebrew is there is kasir. The Strong's number is H2637. Kasir. The picture is to diminish. The picture is to lower down, to push down to defeat, to be in need, to be in want. Almost like somebody's starving to death. So it's better to think about as God's sheep in his kingdom, he will never allow us to be in a position needing anything as his sheep. Now this is key. God will make sure that us, his sheep, when we get to the place where he wants us to be, when we get to the place where we're supposed to serve, obey, to work, 
that will have what we need to complete the job, to be the sheep of the Good Shepherd. This is not the prosperity gospel where all of a sudden you said, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, my goodness. In my ministry, uh, light a menorah, uh, I need a, I don't know, airplane, car, new house, or whatever. The name it and claim it, people. No. I am amazed at the things that God has provided me to do these podcasts. I, I am just amazed. The microphones, the computers, my studio. Little did I know that my boy's bedroom here at our home would be turned into what we call the Israel room and my office. Books upon books. Scholarly articles. Just amazing the blessings over the years that God has provided me to do this. He has not provided me with an airplane. He's not provided me with a new home. I don't have all these new clothes. No, he's given me over and over and over again everything I need to do this work. So I just wonder, I wonder, what's going to come of all this? What's going to come of all these podcast that I'm doing on Genesis and Exodus the videos and so on it's quite clear with the miracles that have happened in my life God has brought me to a place to do this so I am just overwhelmed yes the Lord definitely will make sure that we have everything we need to do the job that's necessary once we get to that point Moses for David for Solomon for the disciples of Jesus we have everything we need to be a sheep so that we can do the task and stay the course and the way that he's taking each of us it's just like Jesus we read this in Matthew 6 31 through 34 Yeah, Matthew 6, 31 through 34. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And verse 34, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So indeed, God, our Lord, Jesus, is saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. Same message from Exodus to Psalms to Jesus. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Moses is told by God that God will give Moses what to say. Moses will be given God's words, and Moses will be his spokesman. Now, what's interesting here, this is the precise definition of a prophet in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for prophet, translated into the English, okay, is prophet. But the Hebrew word is navi. The Strong's number is H5030. 
Now I have a collection of rabbinic commentary on all of the books, uh, the prophetic books in the Hebrew scriptures. And so I'm reading from the early prophets with commentary, the Rubin edition from Art Scroll series, the Mesorah publication. And they go into a definition of the biblical prophet. It's very important for us to actually hear this. What makes someone a prophet is that God has revealed himself to that person in one way or another. Whether or not God commanded him to share the revelation with anyone else. Matter of fact, they'll say Daniel was a prophet. But when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel is not supposed to share the things that God gave him. The word Navi, prophet, is an example of a descriptive noun. One that describes what a person does rather than what he is. Now this is the first thing that I want to bring up. We in the church come to some sort of a conclusion that prophecy is something you become. This is what you are. Somehow God says you will be a prophet. And it's like the rabbis are teaching here. Really, what we're getting at is what a, what, what a person does. As Rashi writes, the word Navi is derived from another Hebrew word that talks about the fruit of the lips. Because a prophet proclaims and causes the nation to hear words of rebuke, for instance, in Isaiah 57, 19. Rashi, a very famous Jewish scholar from the Middle Ages, concludes by translating this function of a prophet with the old French word for preacher. In other words, the familiar word Navi refers to a prophet's role as a transmitter of a divine message. He's a teacher. So when we take a look at this, Daniel, for instance, was not, a, not necessarily a Navi in the sense that he did not, he was not instructed by God to share this message with all of Israel. So therefore, Daniel can be described as a Navi. He received the vision, but not as a preacher to the nation. Going on in the rabbinical teaching here, giving us the background of what a prophet is, that the prophet's ability to foretell events, predict, is only incidental to his primary function. This is apparent in, from Scripture, and scripture's introduction to the institution of prophecy as a vital part of Israel's national fabric. In other words, Bible, a Bible prophet does not foretell the future. He does, but it's not his primary function. Prophecy derives from the need to have a spokesman of God who will direct the people in his ways and inform them of his commands. In this role of the prophet, the verse calls him literally a preacher. And once again, we have Christians have messed this up so bad. We all focus on foretelling. In other words, we constantly say Bible prophets predict the future. No, they don't. 
Moses is a prophet of God. He has given God's word according to the strict definition of a biblical prophet. So he is proclaiming God's word and very few times he predicts. So we should say, what does a prophet do? It's something that he does. He proclaims and predicts. However, prediction, telling the future, and future events is a very minor role. He's going to be proclaiming God's communicated message. So we Christians have just made it the sole purpose. I mean, you talk about, you turn on the radio. You turn on the radio on Saturday, and there's this one program, and it always talks about the rapture and prophecy. And prophecy is all about predicting the future. And again, it's wrong. That's not biblical. Shows again how separated we are from our Jewish roots and the biblical Hebrew and the Greek. It shows so many times the lack of training by the people who are teaching not only on the radio, but even from our pulpits. Looking at an article from Bible Mesh. Bible Mesh is a website and they have an article here about Bible and culture and the decline of biblical languages. Just an example, quoting from their article. In 1816, Harvard University published a circular letter in response to inquiries about admissions standards for ministry students. Candidates for admission, it said, must be thoroughly acquainted with the grammar of Latin and Greek languages and be able properly to construe and parse any portion of the Greek New Testament. Fast forward to the year 2000, when it was only recommended that candidates for admission to Harvard Divinity School have some sort of elementary knowledge of one ancient or modern language. It could be Spanish. It could be French. It doesn't even have to be Greek or Hebrew. The writer goes on to say that the most powerful preachers and theologians of ages past likely would regard this as ministerial malpractice. And this is what's happening on in the in both in the United States and in Canada, in the Association of Theological Schools, schools there's no requirement for them to graduate with either Biblical Greek or Hebrew or both in an accredited Master or Divinity program. This is ministerial malpractice. So for instance, Augustine of Hippo, the great theologian and North African bishop, said men who speak the common tongue need two other languages for the study of scripture, Hebrew and Greek. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said that we will not long preserve the gospel without the languages, the sheath in which the sword of the spirit is contained. I know of one seminary where it is stated by students in the master's degree program, the master's degree of theology or divinity, here locally, that the Bible changes meaning by culture. God's word changes meaning. In other words, when God says his word stands, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever and he does not change. They're going against that. They're saying, no, the Bible changes meaning. 
So as I learn, I try to share with you as I delve into the Hebrew and the Greek, and we take a look at the Bible in its historical context, which is so neglected in the church today. Now, in previous lessons, one of the things that we saw was that coming into the Byzantine period, and especially after the Jewish people began to see the Messiah, they, they began to see that the Messiah had a connection to Moses. And Moses has a connection to Messiah. This was so amazingly seen in Raphael Pate's book, The Messiah Text. I brought that up in the previous, previous session. That indeed, in Judaism, there is this connection between Moses and the Messiah and Messiah and Moses. Now this is pictured beautifully in a picture I've linked you to at the website. If you go to the website, www lightamenorah.org and you take a look for this session and again this session is session 11 of the gospel according to Moses Exodus and in the session description if you go to the website you'll have access to the session description below the picture for this session and there you'll see a link to actually go to a picture and what you're going to see in this picture is, is really cool. But it really, it's a picture that, that captures really the interesting correlation between Moses, the first Redeemer, and the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, as the ultimate Redeemer. If you take a look at that picture, on the left side you see Moses. He's sent by God as you start taking a look at the top left-hand corner and working your way down on the left-hand side. He's sent by God. He's given what to say. God says, you will be as God to Pharaoh. We know that there's going to be blood on the wood, on the doorposts, so that all Israel who chooses to put the blood on the wood will be saved from the wrath of God that will be poured upon the nation of Egypt. There's going to be a new covenant at the mountain of God at Sinai. Mountain of God. Right there in Exodus chapter 3. And at Mount Sinai they see God's glory. But on the right hand side, the other half of the picture of the person there in the middle, it's Jesus. Jesus, and again, <laughs> go into the Gospel of John, you'll find all the verses. Jesus is sent by God. Jesus is given the words to say. He's not as God, but he is God. And in Jesus, there's blood on the wood. And it happens to be the cross. And at Jerusalem, there's a new covenant presented at the mountain of God. The mountain of God moved. You can see this in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 3, Joel 3, verse 17, Zechariah 8, verse 3. And we see God's glory. And it's Jesus. Take a look at John chapter 1, verse 14. John 17, verse 24. This connection is amazing. It's a mirror. 
Moses being chosen by God to bring the Hebrew people out of Egypt. It's a mirror. God is saying, my Messiah will be like Moses. Just like the first Redeemer, Messiah will be the ultimate Redeemer. They're mirrors of each other. And you cannot have one without the other. For on one hand, Moses is given by God the Torah, the written word. And later, Jesus comes, who's the living word. And what does Jesus say? Abide in my word, written, and abide in me, John 15. Abide in the written word, abide in the living word. The mountain of God at Sinai and the new covenant there with all of Israel, you cannot have Messiah without the Sinai covenant. God has established this, established his word. I've also linked you on the website to my vidcast, my video lesson called The Mirror of Passover. This video will go into the connections even in a deeper, more profound way. I highly recommend that you take a look at that video. But there's one thing we hear in verses 10 through 12 here in chapter 4. And what we hear is that God is a prophet. He's given what to say. And this is a clear definition of a prophet. Now later on, we're going to see that Moses is given words to tell the people of Israel, which is a prediction of the future. This is in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. So here's Moses. These words given to him by God. And he's writing this down in the book of Deuteronomy that God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses. So here's the Torah making the connection between Moses and the coming Messiah. This is a prediction. Verse 16, this is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb, or Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. A prophet is predicted, chosen by God, given the words to speak. Now, what's fascinating is we take a look at Luke chapter 9, verse 35. This is the transfiguration. We're going to see God's glory, Jesus, in all of his glory. And in Luke 
we read the following. Then a voice, which is the Father, came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. Now let me repeat that. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. Now Jesus is chosen by the Father. And we're to listen to Him. It's that prediction. In John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus is saying, I only speak what the Father has commanded me to speak. And indeed, Moses is speaking God's Torah, His instruction, not law, to all of Israel and us. And now Moses is told to predict. Predict a prophet coming in God's name, who will speak in God's name. It's Messiah. God is showing us Jesus in Torah. And it just verifies again and again the truth of Jesus' words. In John 5.39, when Jesus is talking to the scribes, to probably some Pharisees, to the chief priests, other temple officials, and he says to them, you are looking at the scripture, looking for eternal life, but I tell you, they testify of me. He says that between 24 to 30 AD, and all they had was the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, of which the Torah were the primary five books. And here we are in the Torah, meeting Moses the prophet. Here in chapter 4, seeing God officially saying, Moses, I'm going to tell you to speak these words, not only to Israel, but to all Egypt. You are a spokesman for me. You're my preacher. You're my teacher. And besides that, I'm giving you words to predict my coming Messiah. For my coming Messiah will be a mirror image of you. And to understand Jesus, we understand Moses. And indeed, here in Torah, in Exodus chapter 4, we see the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel according to Moses. Shalom.